the end of February and the beginning of March is usually one of my favorite times of the year. And because it means spring training, baseball is here. Now, I'm a pretty big fan of baseball just in general, but as many of you at WPC know, I am a lifelong San Diego Padre fan. And somehow, you've still accepted me. A couple weeks ago, my my fandom and my family collided in a way that they never have before. My son, who's in his second year of Pony or Shetland baseball, uh, found out what team he was on, and he was placed on the Dodgers. When he found out the, the name of his team, he was legitimately concerned. He knows how big of a Padre fan I am, and he's heard me say uh, on multiple occasions that it's okay for him to cheer for the Dodgers as long as they're not playing the Padres. And so one night he asked my wife, he said, Mom, will, will Dad cheer for my team? And, and, and she said, yes, yes, son, of, of course he will. So I wear my, my Vince Scully hat to practice as an assistant coach every Wednesday and Saturday, and, and he wears his L.A. Dodgers hat that the PNC got me when I first arrived here at Westminster. My, my, my son's response, it made me think about the way that, that I approach my neighbors. And, and really, it's about so much more than baseball. How do we find common ground in a world of all kinds of options, all kinds of opinions, and neighborhoods and communities full of people with a diverse set of backgrounds, a diverse set of, of belief systems? How do we love God and love our neighbor in a world of difference? So this morning we are looking at a passage where the Apostle Paul uh, gives us an idea how to have those types of conversations. Now, to be fair, he had a a pretty unique worldview himself. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote that he was able to look at the world both through a Jewish lens as well as through a Gentile lens, and that he was able to find common ground in a lot of situations because of that identity. So as he travels through Greece, he, he talks with people whose life experience looks completely different from his own. Their backgrounds, their values, their ethics, their their view on historical events. They they weren't necessarily better better or worse. They were just different. And I imagine everywhere he went, he he, he thought something along the lines of, how am I going to explain Jesus and the gospel in this setting? How am I going to talk about who Jesus was and is in this culture? when I'm surrounded by all types of, of Greek mythology. So in Acts chapter 17, he, he stands up uh, at, at the Areopagus, looking at the valley below, and he, and he says he says this, he says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit, 
the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now, God, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn toward him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I had the opportunity to visit Athens a few years ago, and if you ever have a chance to go once the world kind of opens up again, I highly recommend it. Standing in the vicinity where, where Paul delivered this message, with the Acropolis behind me and, and the Agora down below, right between two places that would have represented both kind of the extraordinary and the ordinary parts of Athenian culture, really the, the entire Greek world, standing in that place has invited me to think about Paul's words and how I live as a Christian in an increasingly diverse yet interconnected world. It was also a, a great reminder of how important it is to understand the context and the culture of our neighborhoods and of the places where we live, where we call home. Last week I said we can't love our neighbors if we don't know their names, if we don't know their stories. This week we're, we're looking at the next step in that neighboring journey. And it's how we relate to our neighbors in a way that they'll understand, in a way that they will appreciate. So before Paul, he shares, before he shares this message, the one that we just read, we're told that he, he walked around Athens and he was disturbed by what he saw, all the idols that he saw. So he heads to the synagogue to ask a few questions, to, to seek their help and to find understanding. But he wasn't just getting a, a feel for the city or the culture of Athens. He was also learning about how the local faith community viewed their neighbors, how they saw the city themselves. He was doing some research. Now, we'll see this a, a little later as the conversation spills out from inside the synagogue out into to the streets that the approach he takes when he's with the re religious people is a little different than he, he takes when he's, he's with kind of the general public. Today, we might say that he, he knew how to read a room to understand his context. So word gets out that Paul is in town debating with philosophers and intellectuals. And these, these two different groups, there's the Epicureans and the Stoics, the, the two groups that he was with. And they're great examples of how complex Athens was at the time. And why it was so important for Paul to find some common ground in the midst of multiple world views. 
Now, Epicureans, they believed that happiness and pleasure were the most important thing in life. You could say that their, their motto was eat, drink, and be merry. Everything, absolutely everything that happened in the world happened by chance. God, or really the, the Greek gods in their, their mind, weren't really a part of a picture. They, 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 they weren't really a part of the picture. And Stoics, on the other hand, they had the uh, kind of exact opposite worldview. Everything was, was predestined by the gods, from the laws of nature to each and every moment of life. Life happened to you, and your role was to accept what the gods were doing. So these two groups, they were incredibly influential in Greek culture. So even if a person wasn't a scholar or a, a philosopher themselves, there's a good chance that the way that, that first century Athenians saw the world was shaped by, by both of these camps. And so Paul, he does some research. And then he, he meets the community in a place and in a way that they would have understood. Now, in some cultures, including first century Greek culture, the way you earned the right to be heard was by proving that you could kind of hold your own in a debate against the best and the brightest minds. And Paul, he knew that was the case, so he engaged the culture in a way that, that not only would have been understood, but also appreciated. Now, I'm not at all saying that that's how our culture is today. That's just how the culture was then. In fact, I, I guess a debate around ancient Greek philosophy would do more harm in today's world than, than good in most of our neighborhoods. But it does beg the question for us today, what, what is that way of engagement in today's world that makes sense? What is the, the way that we find common ground? Is it over sports? Is it over school? Is it kids or grandkids? Right now, to a degree, most of us can find common ground with our neighbors around COVID-19. It's something we're all navigating. Last week, I, I gave a, a Lenten challenge of of listing the names and the stories of our, our neighbors. And today, I want to encourage you to name the things you have in common with your neighbors. That's, that's the Lenten challenge for this week. What do you have in common with your neighbors? Write them down. So Paul is, is taken to the Oropagus, and it, it, we sometimes refer to that space as Mars Hill. Historically, it, this was a place reserved for trials, for kind of judicial councils. But, but during Paul's time, it had become the center for Greek intellect. So when he shows up in the city after kind of coming out of the synagogue and the discussion moves from the synagogues to the streets down the Agora, which is the city, uh, up into the, the Areopagus, uh, it would have been natural for the Greeks to kind of hear that and say, let's, let's go. Let, let's go to this place. This is that important. And this is something I don't want us to miss. If it's that moment that Paul is invited to step into uh, the, the culture in Greece, it's when he's invited to go there. So I don't know what that looks like today, but, but he spent time getting to know their names and their story before he was invited into their space. What's that parallel for us? What, what does that look like in our world? And it's in that space that the door is open that Paul both uh, affirms them and he confronts them. He affirms them. He says, I see that you're very 
religious. I know that you're searching for truth. All the idols in the city and the inscription on on, on the one that said to an, an unknown God, it told him as much. He had done his research. But then he he confronts them, following the style of the rhetoric that would have been common and known in that day. He says, you are ignorant of the thing that you worship. Now, he's not telling them that they're not smart or they're dumb or anything like that. He's not putting them down. Remember, these were the the leading philosophers and and thinkers of his day. That would have been the the quickest way to turn them off. Most of these people were, were brilliant. He's simply saying, you're unaware of what you're worshiping. You, you, don't, you don't see it. Now think of how this might look in our world now. Most of us in American culture wouldn't say that we necessarily worship things like money or power or status. We might not out, come out and, and say that directly, that we make an idol of, of stars or athletes or whatever, that we worship those things. But we place all kinds of things up on, on pedestals. And sometimes, without even acknowledging that we're, we're doing so, we're unaware of what we're worshiping. So Paul's inviting the Athenians to take inventory of what they value. What do you value? What do we value today? And after challenging them for a bit, Paul shares the basic gospel story, starting with creation and leading up to the resurrection of the dead. But as he tells that story, as he educates them, he comes alongside them. He includes them as well as himself in the story. He begins the sermon with the philosophers by by affirming them, saying, you know, look, I, I know that you're searching. And now toward the end, he says, you're right to be searching. God created us to search. The entire reason we're here is to search after what God has for us. But God is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. In him we come alive. It's important that we recognize the order of what happens with Paul in in Athens. He starts by asking questions, by doing his research in the synagogue by going to a local faith community and and doing some digging with them. And then he finds common ground with the community by engaging in a conversation that would have made sense to them, that would have made sense in that culture. And eventually he affirms them and says, I know that you have been seeking. I know that you've been on this search and you were wired to be on this search. And it's only at that point that he shares the gospel story. He doesn't start with saying, you all are are wrong. He starts with earning trust, with showing respect. He waits until he's invited into their space on their turf, the meeting at the Oropagus, to teach and speak truth into their lives. He's invited into it. So my challenge for us this week is to find common ground with someone in our neighborhood. Not so that you can stand up and be preachy to that neighbor. Not at all. I I don't think that's what Paul models here. But so you can build trust. And so that you can work toward loving your neighbor. Finding that common ground. And if you're sitting here and thinking, you know what, Dave, this this is great and all. But I already know everyone in my neighborhood. 
I, it wasn't hard to write down all the, the people who live in my neighborhood. I know them. We've, we've even found common ground. If you're in that place, great. If that's you, great. Then I'd encourage you to ask how Paul's meeting at the Areopagus looks in, in your neighborhood. What can you do to have those open and vulnerable conversations with your neighbors? Let's pray. Lord, we long to love you and love our neighbors well. Lord, in a a diverse world, help us to find common ground. Pray these things in your name. Amen.